was very, very much of the mindset of don't hold off making a decision if you can make that decision right now. Why I created that was because of what happened with the leopard photo. So I said, I'm going to share with you the story. All these numbers, all this science didn't translate. But when I started talking about I do this because it's something in my heart, they can't deny it. That's not normal. <laughs> That's not how hunters talk. But when we can flip that stereotype, it totally builds bridges. This is Britt Longoria, and you are listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I would rest at peace for eternity if my legacy was that I made a positive influence on the non-hunting public about what hunters are and what hunting is. I finally got my buck on our last real day of hunting. So a pro-hunting organization is voting against hunting. And that says anti-hunting to me. There was a year straight where I was averaging up to 200 death threats a day. I hugged it. Like, I just wanted to hug a bear. It's proven that the average steak in a grocery store touches 50 to 100 hands and machines. And we're putting that into our body. Hey, y'all, Cable Smith, host of the Lone Star Outdoors show here. This is Adam Weatherby. I'm Corey Jacobson with Elk 101. This is Christy Titus. Hey, folks, this is John Bear. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. MidwayUSA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com All right, so getting on to today's episode, I'm really, really excited to uh, hop on the line with Britt Longoria. Britt, we've been chatting back and forth for a while. You have been out of the country and then all of this craziness went down. So I'm glad... <laughs> We were finally able to sync up and uh, hop on the line together. I'm glad you're back safe as well. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Me too. Um, so just to start out, I'd love it if you could give a quick introduction about you know yourself, who you are, and really how did you get introduced to the outdoors and hunting? Hmm. It's a great question. I was one of the lucky people that grew up with it. Um, I had a wonderful father, Joe Hosmer, who was very involved with Safari Club International Conservation Efforts, um, international business. And so I, I grew up in kind of the traveling sportsman, um, adventurer type demographic <laughs> as just a, a way of life. Um, so it was definitely family related, but also family pastime, hobby, lifestyle. Gotcha. Now I would love it. You know, I, I, 
when we first started talking, I know it was kind of a, a rough time for you. I would love it if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about your dad. Yeah. Well, dad um, recently passed away in January. Um, he was a an, an inspiration, not just as a daughter, but in the hunting community. Um, he was the first uh, foundation president of Safari Club when the political government entity um, changed to be two boards. Um, so the foundation, which was the conservation wildlife side, and then the government action um, kind of political and hunter's rights side as far as Safari Club International. So SCI and then the foundation. So that was dad's big, big passion. So I was able to be with him through that whole transition of developing proper mission and programs. And he traveled literally all over the world. I mean, Tajikistan to work with the government to reopen Marco Polo um, throughout Africa, working with heads of state and wildlife departments, um, private NGOs, government organizations, I mean, everything in between, CITES, IUCN, different bodies that dictate and uh, determine the amount of wildlife that are allowed to be exported or imported uh, worldwide. So that was always, you know, kind of dinner time conversation. <laughs> um, and it was very much a part of my just regular vocabulary and understanding. So when I went and, you know, would, would be going hunting with dad, it was always much deeper than just, Hey, let's go hunting. You know, there was always an emphasis on the location, the remoteness, the people, the culture, the, you know, the land, the habitat, you know, anti-poaching. I mean, it was always a very, intricate trip above and beyond just a hunt. So dad was, he was a hunting buddy in the sense of not just a mentor or a father, but he was in essence a companion. You know, he, he was my buddy. He was, we would, we would go on hunting trips and it was, you know, it was just him and my time. So it would be, mom would be at home, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, they were doing their own thing. They weren't very interested in hunting. So it was our time to talk about business and relationships or academics and school or, you know, future dreams or planning or, you know, I should have done this. I should have listened to you, Dad. <laughs> All those types of things. So he was like I said, a, a hunting buddy, but then as I started, he was an inspiration to a lot of other people within the hunting and conservation community. Um, he would have time to talk with the field biologist just as much as talking to a diplomat from Zimbabwe coming in, you know, discussing different um, indigenous programs like the campfire program or, you know, stuff like that. So 
I think that he was very much loved and now missed by, by a lot of folks in, in the hunting world. He sounds like an absolutely incredible man. And with, I mean, uh, that is, has given so much to the hunting community. And, and that's really why, you know, I, I got a chance to, I guess, uh, learn a little bit about him when, when we first started talking, I took some time to, to read up about him and, um, you know, he sounds like an incredible man and an, uh, incredible gift to our hunting community. And so I wanted to let you, uh, talk about him a little bit and, and share, uh, share a little bit about him with the listeners. Um, if you had to maybe distill down a few things, uh, that you, learned from your dad as far as as it relates to hunting what would what would you say are some of the key things you would you've learned from him or you would like to maybe share that would that would really represent his legacy Hmm. one of his favorite quotes was you think you have time and it was said by buddha and he lived by that. He, he booked that hunt. He saved and said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set aside time from work. I'm going to make a plan. Or he sat and had that conversation or he made time to, you know, be with his family and do his passions and go on the adventures and, you know, be successful within business internationally and everything like that. And he did it today. He, he was very, very much of the mindset of don't hold off making a decision if you can make that decision right now. So I would say applying that to our goals and our dreams as hunters, you know, if you want to learn to shoot a bow, go out and buy a damn bow. (laughs) Go and start (laughs) practicing. Get lessons. Do it. If you want to go and sit in your tree stand, you know, prioritize it, make time for it. If you want to run your bird dog and train them and hunt over them, do it. If you want to book that hunt, that trip of a lifetime, and you think it's going to be a stretch financially, start saving right now, make it happen. And I definitely live by that, that motto is that you, the problem is, is that you think you have time. You think you can do it tomorrow. You think you can, ah, well, you know, next quarter when I get that bonus, then I'll start, you know, putting that money aside. You don't, you don't know what tomorrow is happening. You don't know what's coming. And if you want something, go for it right now. So what would you say, uh, applying, applying that to yourself, you know, like you said, do you have maybe uh, some examples uh, or or a story where you can where you can say, you know what, I just went for it. Something something that maybe came up and it, it turned into an incredible trip or an or an incredible memory like that. Absolutely. I mean, it's I had Papa Joe as my dad, so I did it every day. <laughs> um. <laughs> um I think probably one of the defining moments or differences of my life was about when I was 12 years old. I woke up and I said, I'm going to have a safari company in Africa. (laughs) Normal 12-year-old girl dream. Oh, yeah. Totally, totally. (laughs) And... (laughs) 
mean, I would be on my bedroom floor drawing out blueprints of this is the lodge format and this is where I'm going to do the tents and this is the fire pit and this is the commercial kitchen and da 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 da. And you know, every single one of my projects that could have a theme, I tied it to Africa or wildlife. I mean, I was just goofy. And I remember helping my folks at one of the safari club international local chapters in Maine. So I, I grew up in Maine um, selling raffle tickets and setting up the silent auction table and helping with registration, whatever. And I met a professional hunter that had a, an outfit company called Dooms on Safaris, Steph Swanepoel. And he came up to me and he said, young lady, you have a job with me anytime you want. Cause I was working my butt off because <laughs> mom and dad said, Hey, do this. And I said, yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <sir>. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I was like, okay, so literally like 12, 13 years old. And I tell mom and dad, Hey, I got a job in South Africa. I can go work down there. And they're like, yeah, you, well, maybe in a couple of years, that's a great idea. And I was like, no, I'm going to go for the summer. <laughs> so <laughs> a couple of summers go by, you know, I've obviously stayed, got the business card, stayed in touch, everything like that. And, and so for my summer vacation, uh, when I was 15, mom and dad let me fly to South Africa. They put me on the plane and stateside and sent me over to South Africa. And Steph and the crew picked me up on that side. Very, very trusting parents. <laughs> and it was 20 years ago. <laughs> and um, I worked my summers in South Africa. And it was a matter of of doing what I wanted to fulfill this desire, this dream to be in Africa and own a safari company. And I think it's one of those things that if you, you stay on the course of these passions and these dreams and these ideas, they come to fruition. They happen. I mean, okay. if you put that much time and effort and love into something, it, it, it comes, it comes out in the wash for sure. So that was the start of really my, my love affair with, with Africa, um, would go every summer for about two and a half, three months, um, sometimes over, over spring break and work my butt off doing everything from learning how to skin animals and butcher animals to bartending to, you know, some office work and understanding what goes on on the registration side and the admin side to, you know, helping to drive people, um, being a driver for the professional hunters to learning to track, learning kind of the whole, the whole work of the hunting industry. Then I went, I actually ended up going to university in South Africa and got my undergraduate there and got my pilot's license. I had a bird hunting company, um, in South Africa. So I was able to run bird dogs and help out with different outfitters that they would need. You know, their clients had filled what they wanted to hunt and, and shoot or what the budget was. And then they brought me in for two or three days of, of bird hunting on their property with dogs and guns and stuff like that. So I, I got to have my safari company in South Africa. <laughs> and that was definitely, like I said, that that was probably, you know, you think you have time, so you got to do it now. And I did it. And it was a huge defining moment. 
Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. So, you know, what, what then takes you from, uh, from this young girl, you know, that's, that's just starting out her, her safari company in Africa to now, you know, I look through, I look through your Instagram, I've, I've got it open here and it's just, I mean, adventure after adventure after adventure, Um, I mean, I am, I like, I sit here and I get, I get so completely jealous. Um, and you know, it's in, in a very inspired way. Like you just, you know, I see all these adventures and, uh, you know, it, it makes me want to, you know, slam down the laptop go throw on my camo. And if nothing else, at least go chase some coyotes or some pigs or something, you know, this afternoon, but, uh, you know, so, so kind of what brings you up to, to present day? Well, that, that whole Instagram account that you're talking about at Britt Longoria yeah, and why I created that was because of what happened with the leopard photo. Um, September, 2018, my leopard photo went viral. It was a photo that I had not shared publicly. I had not posted. I had simply submitted it to the SCI record book. And because the leopard was exceptionally big, it was in the top 10, which then automatically got pulled onto their carousel of top 10s that I think was on their public side of the website. That got picked up by a troll, went around the world a couple of times, millions of hate mail and death threats and horrible wishes on my family and just the works, like what, what you would be so scared of by sharing a photo. And in the photo, it is me holding the leopard and I'm smiling. And through all of this hate, I started, I had kind of an aha moment. I started to understand that people were not necessarily mad at me as an individual because they didn't know me, they didn't know me from Adam. I mean, (laughs) this was a total stranger. But that they could wish such horrible stuff on an individual I said, okay, this isn't about me. This is about hunters and about hunting. And let my let my let me put myself into a position where I'm a non-hunter and I have no idea what's going on. 
I'm not talking about anti-hunters. Anti-hunters are the extreme opposite end, the, the violent minority, very loud and vocal that will never decide to, you know, have a conversation. I'm talking about the kind of 80% in the middle, the general non-hunting public. What are they asking? They're mad. They're emotional. And it's because they don't understand what this picture is. And so I started to disseminate why does it upset them? I'm smiling. I look happy. I look joyful. And from kind of the, that point blank range, why would someone be joyful and happy about killing a beautiful animal? I get it. That's pretty, that's pretty crappy. Why, why would anyone be happy about a death? And for the first time in my hunting kind of career lifetime, I had to stop and think about why do I do what I do and how do I translate that? Because you could look at a photo, a, you know, a, what I call a grip and grin photo, a trophy photo of a whitetail or something and be like, yeah, that's awesome, man. That's great. But if you shared that same photo with someone that had no idea about that experience because they hadn't experienced it themselves, they would have no idea why that guy was smiling. And so I said, damn it, guys, I'm going to share with you my trophy photos. I'm going to share you share with you the story. I'm going to tell you about before this photo and after this photo. I'm going to tell you about the process to get to this point, And I'm going to tell you about the meat and about the horn and the hide and the antler and where it goes and what it's used for and what I do with it and what it means to me. I'm going to tell you about the internal side, not the external. Here's the photo. So creating that account, I wanted to share the process, the journey. Um, about a year before that leopard went viral, I was hunting a lot with my husband, Ricardo, and I started wanting to take photos that weren't kind of that, like I said, traditional grip and grin photo that we're all used to. I wanted him to take pictures of that moment when I first laid hands on the animal that I've harvested. And so I told him, you know, take my iPhone and just start taking pictures. I don't care what angle, I don't up, down, whatever. Just take photos as I'm saying thank you for the process, for the experience, for the meat, for the life, for the journey. And I want to see that because I had never seen what I look like when I do that. And so I had maybe three or four animals that I had you know, kind of gone through and done this with. And I went back through and I started looking through those, those images. And I said, you know what, there, there's something in this that translates a lot better than a grip and grab photo. That it's humble, it's respectful, it's mindful, it's processing, it's emotional. And I can take this and I can translate that better than a grip and grip to someone who doesn't know the experience of hunting. So part of my process of the Apert Longoria account is to include psychology, include emotional stuff like poems and song lyrics and things to try to express that because it's so hard as hunters 
to define why we do what we do. And it's so individual. I mean, everyone has different, different motives and reasons. And I learned that when talking with these people that were so emotionally wound up and pissed off at me for going and hunting a leopard and then having a photo smiling with the leopard, that if I spoke about my motivation, that they started to understand better than if I tried to justify it with the facts and figures that we are kind of taught to talk about, you know, number of jobs created, conservation of species, you know, all this black and white facts and figures, it's biology, you know, biologically good for the management of the herd population, blah, 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 blah. you know, all these numbers, all this science didn't translate. But when I started talking about, I do this because it's something in my heart, something in my soul, something in my blood that says I'm a hunter, that it's spiritual, they can't, they can't deny it. They can't say anything different because being so politically correct in this <laughs> modern world where we don't, we don't fight other people's emotions or other people's spirituality or other people's desire to do something that's an internal aspect, it's harder to fight. And then seeing that, I was basically fighting fire with fire, that this non-hunting group that was emotionally upset with this concept, I could speak on an emo emotional level and have them start to kind of get it. They didn't, they didn't care that the meat was going to a village. They didn't care <laughs> that it was creating jobs. They wanted to know why I was a hunter, why I did what I did. And that was definitely kind of the, the culmination of, of what you see online is basically a year of putting out there why I do what I do because I felt so attacked and so misunderstood that I was like, I'm going to tell you my story. If you're so wound up about this picture here, if you want to read it, if you want to look at it, if you want to hear my blogs, <laughs> then, then here's my heart. Here's, here's my soul. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. So have you seen uh, kind of a, a marked change in in responses to your pictures, to your story over this la over the the la the year of you posting and building this, I have. Um, the, of course, there'll be people that come in there and are just nasty and gross and that just block delete onward. But if someone comes in with an honest question or a 
a comment that can be, you know, a, a discussion point, then I absolutely engage with them and talk with them. And they might not agree with me, but I find that they at least were talking on the same wavelength and they can kind of understand, okay, I kind of get it. I'm not going to go and do it myself, but you be you, you know, good on you. <laughs> <Carry> on. <laughs> They're not as, as angry, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, I think it's a very disar it, it's very disarming for them to where you know they're they're used to interacting with people in a certain way and you know I mean I, I'll admit I know a lot of of people whose whose initial response is well f you and the horse you rode in on when people when people you know throw that kind of hate at them and then you know there's also a lot of a lot of people that will present the facts and figures, but then also don't present the emotion. Um, and I think it's important to present both sides of that. You know, it, the facts and figures are important because it, uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it reaches out to people. Right. I mean, it's, but it's, it's also, it's not the motivation why we go and hunt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't, we don't, we don't, I don't go and hunt because I'm, saving the leopard species. I go and hunt because it is an internal drive. It's, it's a passion of being outdoors and having everything so amped up that you cannot hear anything over your own heartbeat. You cannot feel anything other than the pulse in the tips of your fingers. You can feel the cold sweat on your body in the damp little blind waiting for that leopard to come in. I mean, it's, it's, it's so intense and that's why I do it. I don't do it because I can get those feelings any time I go hunting. And I think the other aspect is, is that as hunters, we often share all of our successes. You know, we share the trophy photos. We share those field harvest photos. We share the, the venison steak on the grill. But there's so many days and nights and years of daydreaming and contemplation and building up to that moment that we don't talk about. And from a non-hunting perspective, it's like, well, crap, Britt Longoria goes out there and every time she goes out there, she, she kills something. Do you see that? Look at she's got another thing on her Instagram. <laughs> it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, this is months of, of time put into that moment. So I think that, like I said, that if, if we as hunters can share kind of the before and the beyond of that individual photo, it brings a lot more people into the awareness of why we seek out what we do. So, I I find myself sitting here and I, I I'm listening to you talk and I'm getting so involved in what you're saying that I forget that I'm not just listening to a podcast and I'm actually hosting one here. Uh, <laughs> I'm really, I mean, what you're saying is so incredibly powerful and it's just, it's sitting here and it's like, it, it's getting my mind going and I'm sitting here thinking about it. Then I'm like, Oh man, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually speaking with her right now. I should probably, <laughs> um, but it's such an important message to get across, you know, <laughs> it's well, and, and we all can do it. 
every single one of us has the opportunity to take these moments that we typically don't share. Because, I mean, think about it. 85% of the hunting population is male. Out of those males, it's typically not culturally appropriate to talk about your innermost feelings or that, geez, you know, when I shot that doe to fill the freezer, it made me feel kind of sad because I was watching her and, you know, she's a pretty girl and, you know, you know that's not normal. <laughs> that's not how hunters talk. You know, it's like, woohoo, we got, we got steaks for, for the season. We got that tag checked off. Da, 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 da. But when we can flip that stereotype, it totally builds bridges. And it's so cool to watch people, like I said, not necessarily want to run out there and be hunters, but understand it and respect it. Because if we can get them a moment to listen to what we're, what we're talking about, that's when, that's when paradigms shift. And you catch them off guard when you talk about emotion. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, I, I've recently left all of the Facebook group, almost all of the Facebook groups I used to be part of just because I, I fully believe social media uh, in large quantities is, is, can be very toxic. Um, and, but I, I just recently, right before I left some of these face hunting Facebook groups, uh, a guy had posted a picture and it wasn't a direct quote, but uh, it was it was kind of a paraphrased version of that well-known Fred Bear quote where he talks about, I take that life, you know, with joy and sorrow, uh, you know, how he he does feel a pang of regret when he takes a life. And so many people just went and proceeded to rip this poor dude apart and and it, I, it just drove me up the wall because I made the mistake of reading the comments, which is the first rule that you should never, ever read the comments. Um, but, you know, this poor guy was just effectively quoting Fred Bear and most of these people didn't even realize it. And they're like, oh, you shouldn't if you regret what you're doing, you shouldn't be hunting. No, you're just an apologist and da da da. And and. I sat there and, and they're like, oh, no real hunter would feel this way. And I'm like, well, you know, and then, of course, I started getting into it with a few of them and we won't go down that path. But, you know, it, it's just it just illustrates exactly what you were saying about how often it's so. And, you know, it's it's definitely worse with worse with guys. But even, you know, I've talked with some incredible women in the hunting industry. I've had just tons of them on the podcast and it's it's all it's just as bad i think for women because there's often such a stereotype or a negative impression to where it's like oh you're just a woman of course you're being emotional about this kind of a thing and i don't think it matters if you're a man or a woman people just love to rip on you the second you show any sort of authenticity or emotion in what you're doing it's insane to me but it's so important it's it's so important and it's not it's not like i said it's not so important within our hunting community it's important to the people outside of the hunting community mm-hmm. because they want to know we're human <laughs> that we have feelings, that this isn't like the stereotypes of the bloodlust and the, 
you know, I'm going to whack it and stack it and kill it and grill it and all that stuff, which, (laughs) okay, is is definitely part of it. But the translation of the, I'm going to whack it and stack it and kill it and grill it comes down to being primal. That there is a, I am hunter, I beat my chest, I kill deer, you know, kind of a thing. (laughs) That what they're saying, what they're saying is emotional, is internal. And they don't even understand that as very masculine activities such as hunting, they are expressing things that are ancestral. You know, this, this is a long, long bloodline of millions of years of us having hunting as part of our DNA. And what's interesting is that not, you know, not everyone is a hunter and that's, that's as it should be. You know, you have a village and you have the, the gatherers and you have the hunters and you have the shepherds and you have the guys that are out there pounding on the mealy meal and grinding up the corn for the bread and whatever, you know, everyone has their job just as if you were to have someone that has an exceptional voice or a fabulous ability to do oil painting. You know, you have people that have certain skill sets that are innate, that are God given. And that's just like with hunting. (laughs) It's no (laughs) different. Some of us are, some of us aren't. And so it's very interesting to talk to some of these very masculine guys and be like, yeah, you know, I've hunted on six continents and I have almost 150 species. Um, I like big caliber guns. I have a four, five, eight lot and I usually shoot a 375 and I know <laughs> which side of a shotgun to use and you know, I can, I can <laughs> keep up with the best of them and mountain hunting situations and you know, stuff like that. And it's really, really fun to have these conversations with them because it starts them thinking about it. Like I said, you think about the guy that says, I am hunter, I kill deer, <laughs> I eat meat, <laughs> stuff like that, that that's their motivation. They're not going out there to create jobs. They're not going out there to save black rhinos. They're not going out there to you know do a game census on a mountain. There is something primal, and that's what I'm talking about. Everyone has that internal aspect that can be translated and be understood. That's the biggest thing is that it's understood universally. And, you know, we talk, you talk about how it's, how it it is, it's in our blood. It's part of our, our shared heritage as human beings, as, as people. And uh, I, you know, I'm curious maybe about some of the experiences because I, I feel like the hunting can open up such an opportunity to connect with other people that you would maybe not be able to relate to in any other way, because like you said, it, it is in our blood. It's, it is our shared heritage. Maybe what are some of the experiences you've had? You've spent so much time in Africa and traveling the world. You know, what are maybe some of these experiences you had connecting with other cultures that you may not have interacted with otherwise, if it wasn't for, for this shared heritage of hunting? Well, I would say that it's not even necessarily international, but probably some of my more 
you know, relatable experiences where I've had that is I'm the executive director of Trinity Oaks, which is a nonprofit based out of San Antonio. We work with underprivileged city kids, uh, terminally ill people and their families. We work with um, veterans, um, all different demographics that can specifically benefit from outdoor related experiences. And just like you and I, that we've never met in person, <laughs> you and I can talk and go blah, 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 and have this great conversation is because of our shared experiences. And what's neat about working in a nonprofit with these different demographics that either used to hunt and don't hunt anymore or don't have the financial means to be going out because one of the kind of side notes is, is that Texas is 95% private land. So in Texas, you have to either know someone, have the financial means to own a property, or have a, you know, a deer lease or something like that in order to be getting out on land that's not otherwise a national park, which obviously you can't hunt in unless it's regulated on a certain season and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I would say some of the most incredible experiences are, for instance, like working with a group of veterans. And we do these um, events called Hero Celebration, where we get a bunch of guys together. Um, sometimes they're disabled, sometimes they're Purple Heart, sometimes they're just battling PTSD and look 100%, but you know, fighting demons internally. And you bring them to the ranch and you sit around the campfire the first night. It's kind of quiet. Everyone's kind of, you know, feeling each other out. And then, you know, you start talking a little bit. Okay, guys, tomorrow, this is the plan. This is the game plan. We're going to get up at five. We need to be in blinds at this time. You know, kind of go through the anticipation of what's coming. You know, the next day, they've had a day in the field. Now they have something shared to talk about. Each one of them had a different experience in the field. They saw something different. They felt different emotions. They had different stories to come and talk about. And with creating the opportunity to have these outdoor experiences and specifically something that's so powerful like hunting that brings out really, really deep emotions, whether they're shared or not, <laughs> that they are then able to open up on, you know, family stuff on, geez, I'm having a hard time with my son, he's got this there, what, whatever, or, you know, getting into the combat stuff. And one of the things that we've done is that we haven't, it's not all current generation, it's also Vietnam vets and Korean War and World War II. Um, and to have these guys come out and all of a sudden have a ability to articulate what is going on and to relate to other people and to share their experiences and not feel isolated or alone on so many other levels is incredible, absolutely incredible. And it's just a matter of getting outside, sitting around a campfire and having the opportunity to experience nature and not just experience it as a spectator, but as a 
participant. It's it's really incredible when when you are sharing that experience with someone how much it does it does open up. You know, I've I've done a lot of solo hunting, but the few times that I've had a chance to to really go out with someone, you know, you really you may not even know each other. You know, there's been a few times where, you know, somebody will call me up and they're like, Hey, I've got this buddy that's hunting in the same area as you, you know, uh, he, uh, is it cool if he meets up with you and you guys head out? And, you know, so I may not have met this person until literally the second we're walking into the, you know, the woods together. And suddenly you're walking out of there, whatever it is, you know, six, eight, 10 hours later, and you feel like you've known the person for, uh, you know, decades. <laughs> it's suddenly, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a connection that can't be forged any other way. No. And it, it's this, like I said, it's, it's universal. And I know that some of our volunteers that help with the guiding that are in the blinds with these veterans, that they come out of it more changed than the veterans because they're opening up about similar experiences and it's, it, it creates this very interesting intimacy and, you know, trust that it's like, it's, it's, it's magic. And I, I don't want to say that in a, in a hokey way, but there, there is, there is something so special about sharing these types of experiences with people that it, you know, it just, I mean, some of my closest friends, Actually, I'd say all of my closest friends are hunters. You know, I have a group of guys that I've known since I was tiny going to these <laughs> hunting conventions that we've all hung out together and we've all known each other and like, you know, known just way too many secrets about each other. <laughs> and it's like, we have a constant group text going and I hear from each of them like basically every single day. And I remember when I married my husband, he's like, who are these guys? Why, why are you keep talking with them? I'm like, no, 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 you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> and it's, but it's because of this intrinsic understanding of wanting to go hunting and having that as a conversation point and understanding kind of how our, how our minds work. And it's just, it's just easy. I mean, it's a, I, I guess to, to simplify it all into a one liner. I mean, hunting is, it's a universal language in and of itself that, that, everyone can connect to everyone can understand and everyone can, can use to communicate. Um, I think it's, it's just, it's an incredible thing. Uh, so if folks wanted to find you online, follow along, uh, you know, check out everything you've got going on, where can they, uh, where can they hunt you down? Um, I have two Instagram accounts. I have at Brit Longoria and then I've just started a new one called at honor the hunt. And that is going to focus solely on hunting images that basically honor the hunter. So it has an aspect of humanity in it, a hand, a silhouette, a person. It honors the hunted, the game animal or the bird. And it honors the hunt, which is what I'm trying to communicate is that that whole process of being able to tell a story about what we do. So be sure to check that one out too. And I'm always looking for photos to add to that. So just DM me 
um, any photos that you think would be good for for that. Um, I'm writing some of my hunting experiences in different hunting publications. Um, so that's you'll probably see me pop up in different mm-hmm. publications. And then I also have a blog, um, just BritLongoria.com, where I've been writing about different current affairs or different thoughts that pop in my head or stuff that's always hunting related um, that I find of interest. And I hope other people do too. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I will make sure to link to those on the show notes page so folks can find them really easily. Um, As we're winding down here, one thing I always like to close out with is just you know, say you run into someone or maybe you're just having a conversation with someone online, whatever it is, and they see all of your adventures and they think, you know, that looks incredible. You know, I just, I've always wanted to go hunting, you know, whether it's Africa or North America or wherever it is, but I just, I've always wanted to go hunting. It's, it's, I I have a passion for it, but there's so much to learn. There's, I don't know anyone that does it. It's, it's really, really intimidating what would you say to that person to maybe encourage them or what, what, you know, advice or words of wisdom would you give that person? Absolutely. I would say go to Safari Club International's website. And I, and I say this as a life member, but I'm not sponsored or paid by SEI. I just have literally grown up within the organization. Go, go to their website and there is a chapter locator where you can put in your zip code and it will tell you what SEI chapters are around your area, your region. And I would say go to a chapter event. They'll do trophy room mixers and days of sporting clays and, you know, banquets and fundraisers and, you know, soup kitchen things where they're giving out venison chili. And I mean, just, a whole different plethora of ways to get involved and meet like-minded people. Um, There are also so many people are looking to help, looking to mentor, looking to give advice on caliber or shooting lessons or packing lists or recommendations of outfitters or bad recommendations, don't go with this guy or whatever. (laughs) But I would say (laughs) you can get involved with Safari Club International that they will give you the basis to feel comfortable and confident around like-minded people and get you to that next step of whatever your dream is as far as hunting or ventures or local stuff or international stuff. Um, Just a, a really great resource. Fantastic. Well, Britt, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm glad again that you're back safe and we were able to able to find the time to connect. Well, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. You as well. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure you check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Well, y'all, that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. 
Thank you for listening to the Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. 